Judges chapter 8. It's unfortunate that sometimes people do real well for a while and then for various reasons they fail. And I believe that's the case with Gideon. I recognize that there are some debatable issues about some of these judges and there are those who would prefer to take a almost totally favorable view of all the judges. I think that's not uh, the correct view in my own assessment. In fact, I would suggest to you that just as the people continue to go downhill farther and farther, I believe the judges did too. The quality of the leaders matched the nature of the people and that the cycles got lower and lower and the peaks got lower and lower as well. That uh, you can see uh, a declining degree of quality in these deliverers. And uh, in spite of the fact they did some, some really amazing feats by faith, as Hebrews 11 suggests, I do not believe that that is a sign that we ought to interpret uh, their character overall in every case as being what it should have been. And I think Gideon's was, and uh, but it isn't. Judges chapter 8, let's start in verse 4. Then Gideon and the 300 men who were with him came to the Jordan and crossed over, weary yet pursuing. And he said to the men of Succoth, Please give loaves of bread to the people who are following me, for they are weary, and I am pursuing Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. And the leaders of Succoth said, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hands, that we should give bread to your army? And Gideon said, All right. When the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, then I will thrash your bodies with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. And he went up from there to Penuel and spoke similarly to them. And the men of Penuel answered him just as the men of Succoth had answered. So he spoke also to the men of Penuel, saying, When I return safely, I will tear down this tower. Now Zeba and Zalmunna were in Karkor. And their armies with them, about 15,000 men, all who were left of the entire army of the sons of the east, for the fallen were 120,000 swordsmen. And Gideon went up by the way of those who lived in tents on the east of Noba and Jokbea and attacked the camp when the camp was unsuspecting. When Zeb and Zalmunna fled, he pursued them and captured the two kings of Midian, Zeb and Zalmunna, and routed the whole army. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Herod. And he captured a youth from Succoth and questioned him. Then the youth wrote down for him the princes of Succoth and its elders, 77 men. And he came to the men of Succoth and said, Behold, Zeban Zalmunna, concerning whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Zeban Zalmunna already in your hand that we should give bread to your men who are weary? And he took the elders of the city and thorns of the wilderness and briars, and he disciplined the men of Succoth with them. And he tore down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. Gideon seemed quite determined to pursue the remnant of the Midianite army, despite his men's exhaustion. He asked a couple of Israelite cities for help, for supplies, for bread, something to eat, some refreshments. The communities, however, refused to help Gideon, I think because they feared reprisal from the Midianites if, in fact, Gideon was unsuccessful. They were not convinced Gideon was going to be able to conquer the Midianites, and they were afraid if they helped Gideon, the Midianites would come back and punish them. There's a lot of people 
unwilling to hazard their lives in the heat of the battle. You know, when the outcome is decided, then everybody's okay with with helping. But when you still don't know which side's going to be the winning side, there's a lot of people who are not willing to do right. And so Gideon was quite upset with these two cities. And uh, the Gideon that we met threshing the wheat at the beginning of his story in chapter 6 now says, I'm going to come and thrash you guys with thorns and briars and that sort of thing. And uh, he also threatens to tear down the tower at Penuel. And sure enough, when Gideon won the victory, then he come, came back and did exactly what he said. He disciplined the leaders of Succoth with these briars and thorns. And he tore down the tower of Penuel and killed the men who were in it. What happened to the Gideon who was so uh, mild-mannered and even, you know, worried and, and unconfident and and uh, scared. Now he's mutated into some sort of uh, rather self-centered tyrant who's taking vengeance out even against his own people. He certainly has been blessed by the Lord with strength. He has been given the ability to win victories. But he doesn't show much of the the gentle and, and meek spirit that the Lord wants. Beware of the gifts of the Spirit without the fruit of the Spirit. And that's just the beginning of uh, Gideon's downfall. In verse 18, Then he said to Zeba and Zalmunna, What kind of men were they whom you killed at Tabor? And they said, They were like you, each one resembling the son of a king. And he said, They were my brothers, the sons of my mother, as the Lord lives if only you had let them live, I would not kill you. So he said to Jether, his firstborn, rise, kill them. But the youth did not draw his sword, for he was afraid because he was still a youth. Then Zeban Zalmunna said, rise up yourself and fall on us. For as the man, so is his strength. So Gideon arose and killed Zeba and Zalmunna and took the crescent ornaments, which were on their camel's necks. It's maybe a little more difficult to interpret this heart. But here's what I see. When he finds out that these two Midianite leaders had killed his own brothers, this quits being a battle for the Lord's honor and becomes a personal vendetta against them. He is now trying to take out his own vengeance. He's not trying to obey God. And he asked his son Jether to do it and well, you know, Jether kind of reminds you of the old Gideon. You know, he, he, he's unwilling to do it. He's, he's afraid. So Gideon does it himself. But I think that highlights the change that we're seeing taking place in Gideon. He's no longer that uh, fearful, young, inexperienced uh, man who needs reassurance before he even fights the Lord's battles. Now he's willing to take matters into his own hands and satisfy his personal grievances with the sword. Then look at verse 22. It gets worse. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, both you and your son, also your son's son, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. You see what they're saying? They're saying, become a king. You are the one who delivered us. You ought to be our ruler. Now, you know, their principle was correct. The one who delivered them is the one who ought to rule over them. 
But who was the one who delivered them? You remember what we looked at this morning? That God was afraid with 32,000 soldiers that they think they were the ones who did it. God was afraid that with 10,000 soldiers, they'd take the credit for themselves that they did it. He whittled them down to 300 soldiers and look here. They are still thinking that Gideon's the one who won the battle. They are wanting to make him king and give him the credit. Maybe Gideon has been behaving more and more like a king, so it only seemed right to his followers to make him one. To his credit, in quotes, verse 23, Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. I'll tell you, that was a good statement. That's exactly the way it ought to be. He is not the ruler. His son should not be the ruler. It ought to be the Lord who rules over them. But you know, actions speak louder than words. And it seems to me that the way Gideon acted belies what he said. Look at verse 24. Yet Gideon said to them, I would request of you that each of you give me an earring from his spoil. For they had gold earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they said, we will surely give them. So they spread out a garment, and every one of them threw an earring there from his spoil. And the weight of the gold earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple robes which were on the kings of Midian, and besides the neck bands that were on their camels' necks. And Gideon made it into an ephod and placed it in his city, Ophrah, and all Israel played the harlot with it there, so that it became a snare to Gideon and his household. Yeah, Gideon says, no, no, I, I won't be a king over you. But he asked for the plunder. He asked for them to give them their gold spoil. Now, there's no other judge you read about before or after him that did something like that. That made a request to receive the spoil from them. That's the kind of request a king would make. And then what did he do with that loot? He made this ephod. Now, it's not totally clear to me what an ephod involves. At, in some cases, at least, they seem to be sort of a, a breast piece for the priests and were uh, what they used to inquire of the Lord. It may be that this ephod has some religious significance and that while Gideon is... Uh, Maybe saying, I'm not going to, uh, I don't, I don't want my, my own rule over you. He's making sort of his own religion over them. He's certainly not a Levite. He has no business making any sort of thing that they would worship, and yet that's, that's apparently what he does. He makes something that they play the harlot with. Evidently they worship it. They treat it sort of like an idol. Now do you remember? When Gideon's career began back here in his home city of Ophrah, that he started his career by tearing down the idol. That's what God told him to do. And now look, he ends his career by making something else that the people worship. That becomes an idol to them. He reminds you a little bit of Aaron. That's sort of what he did, and, and that was certainly idolatry and was wrong. 
And then look at verse uh, 28. So Midian was subdued before the sons of Israel. They did not lift up their heads anymore. And the land was undisturbed for 40 years in the days of Gideon. Then Jeroboam, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons who were his direct descendants. For he had many wives. He created a harem. Again, that's a king kind of thing to do. It makes you wonder if when they offered to make him king, even though he verbally refused, if it didn't sort of go to his head. If he didn't sort of like the idea of being king, and while he may never have used the title, he certainly adopted the characteristics of the king. He lived like one. Verse 31, and his concubine who was in Shechem also bore him a son, and he named him Abimelech. Guess what the name Abimelech means? It means my father is a king. Now, that's just the name he gave him. But we know almost always in the Old Testament, the names were chosen for what they meant. Now, I suppose it's possible that Gideon was thinking about God, his father. But since he names his own son, my father's a king, it, and, and since he's acting like a king here... It makes me wonder if, if he didn't mean himself. And if Abimelech wasn't uh, his way, his name for him wasn't his way of saying, you know, I, I'm really like a king, guys. <laughs> um, verse 32, and Gideon, the son of Joash, died at a ripe old age and was buried in the tomb of his father Joash in Ophrah of the Amizrites. Then it came about as soon as Gideon was dead that the sons of Israel again played the harlot with the Baals and made Baal Bereath their god. Thus the sons of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hands of all their enemies on every side, nor did they show kindness to the household of Jeroboam, that is Gideon, in accord with all the good that he had done to Israel. Now, the effect of Gideon's time of judgeship does not seem to have been very good in the final analysis. He did rid them, God did, of the Midianite threat. But when Gideon dies, they go back into idolatry, even to Baal worship. And it seems to me that Gideon's ephod contributed to, to their immediately going back into Baalism when Gideon died. And Gideon left behind that son of Imelech, who in the next chapter is oh, a mess. He's terrible. He had none of his father's scruples about not accepting the kingship or the uh, the power. What Gideon, it seems to me, tried to get sort of secretly, Abimelech is willing to get by violence and bloodshed. He seeks actively to become king. So what Gideon left behind was a nation in idolatry and a son who tries to butcher his way to the throne. And what I see in Gideon is a humble, meek man who becomes proud and arrogant, selfish, vindictive, a king in action, if not in name. Now, what I want to think about with you tonight is, is what happened. What happened to Gideon that caused him to go from humility to pride. Pride's one of our biggest dangers. 
And if we can try to figure out some of what went wrong with Gideon, I think it'll help us not to have the same thing go wrong with us because it so easily can. Let me suggest five things. The first one is that success went to his head. <clears throat> Increasing experience isn't always a good thing. Sometimes there's more humility. When we're young and inexperienced and feeling inadequate. Sometimes those are the very best times for us because that's when we turn to the Lord. That's when we know that we have to have the Lord's help. As we gain success, as we become more confident, as things go well for us, the tendency sometimes is to not give God the credit for those successes, to let our um, victories go to our head and lose that cautious, humble spirit. It seems to me like that's what Gideon did. Here he is, trembling and afraid and, and asking the Lord for reassurance and to bolster his flagging confidence over and over again. And then, then as he gains the victory, now he, he does this in his own strength. Does that seem like a really unusual shift to make? Does it seem odd that someone would go from feeling inadequate and inferior and incapable suddenly to becoming proud and overconfident? I'd like to suggest something for you. I don't think that is such an unusual or illogical change. Think about this one. In some ways, both the old Gideon and the new Gideon were too focused on themselves. The old Gideon, who felt inadequate and insecure and inferior and incapable, was a Gideon who was thinking about himself and his own strength and his own abilities. And the Gideon who was proud and selfish and arrogant and king-like was a Gideon who was thinking too much of himself and his own abilities. Sometimes, feelings of insecurity and inferiority quickly shift to feelings of pride and self-confidence. Because in both cases, the focus is on our own strength and success and not on the Lord. It may be that if Gideon had been less concerned about his insecurities and just trusted the Lord to begin with, when he won the victory, he would have just trusted in the Lord and given the credit to him for the victory that he gained. I think it's not so unusual that somebody who's thinking about themselves all the time in terms of how inadequate they are, whenever the Lord blesses them with any success, begins to be proud and overconfident. You might think about that a little bit in your own life and experience. But success, to me, went to Gideon's head. A second thing that I see in Gideon that hurt him is he began to see the issues as personal. Instead of thinking that he was fighting the Lord's battles, he began to think of these as being his own battles. He was seeking his own revenge. And I think that happens to us sometimes, too. That we get into battles for the Lord, except they become battles for ourselves and not battles for the Lord. Would you look for a moment at 2 Timothy chapter 2? 
as Paul tells Timothy how to fight the Lord's battles. 2 Timothy 2.24, And the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. We need to have as teachers gentle spirits seeking to recover those who have been deceived by the devil. What I see happening sometimes is you get people who are, they're fighting for the truth. We're standing up for the Lord and we're going to show those guys how stupid and idiotic they are. And it becomes sort of, well, I'm going to prove I'm smarter than they are. I'm going to prove that I, you know, I'm in charge here. How dare they contradict my word? That's not the issue. When we understand it's the Lord's battle we're fighting, we'll do it with gentleness and meekness and patience. With urgency and with frankness, yes, because we love the Lord and we love those who are deceived. But we don't turn this into a personal kind of thing in fighting the battles for the Lord. We need to constantly remember that we're dealing with the Lord's cause and not our own. i tell you another thing where we see that. What do we think when somebody does some disgraceful thing? Some Christian commits some rather extreme act of sin and wickedness. What do we first think of? Do we think, well, that's that's a terrible thing because they dishonored God. They shamed the Lord and they hurt themselves. Or, Or do we think, they brought disgrace upon us as a church. They reproached us. They, they really need to make that up to us because they've given us a bad name. Now that really ought not to be our primary focus. The, the question is really not what kind of a name have they given us because it really doesn't make any difference what kind of name we have. The issue is when we dishonor the Lord. That ought to be our primary concern. But I think you can see a lot of times we're thinking a lot more about ourselves. People all the time talking about, well, well look what they did to the church. What is the church? Biblically? The church is us. That's what the church is according to the Bible. That's really not the important thing, what they did to us. The important thing is what we do to the Lord. Gideon began to see these issues as personal. And that hurt him. A third thing. I think Gideon listened to the flattery of the people. Look at Proverbs chapter 27. Flattery is such a dangerous and seductive thing. Proverbs 27, 5. Better is open rebuke than love that is concealed. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Praise is a trap. Praise is, it will, 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 uh, praise is deceitful. And it will hurt us. Every time somebody starts telling you how great you are, how wonderful you're doing, how, how they just, they've never heard anybody like you, they've never seen anybody like you, you're just the most wonderful thing that's ever been, watch it. They probably said that to the last idiot they met. You know, listen to them once in a while when they're around somebody that you don't think too much of. And, and, and it's, it's awfully easy for the devil to exploit it. Flattery, 
and let it go to trial. You know, we start believing some of the praise we hear. They wanted Gideon to be the king. You won that victory, Gideon. Won't you be our king? I think that hurt him. It, you know, somebody starts flattering you. And if nothing else, you become partial. You begin to make special allowances for them. You begin to give them special favors. You're not, you're not very fair and just when it comes to them because they like you so well. <laughs> they think so much of you. Flattery is really dangerous. And I think flattery was a part of Gideon's downfall here. And then another thing you can see in Gideon is he didn't live up to what he said. Gideon said, no, the Lord will be your king, not me. That's what he said. That's not how he lived. Hypocrisy blinds us because we say the right thing, we just don't do it. And so we think that if, as long as we say the right thing, that that's good enough. We don't have to do the right thing. He said, no, I won't be your king. It's not what we say. It's how we are, how we live. That really is where the rubber meets the road. We sometimes hurt ourselves a lot because we make these confident statements about how loyal to the Lord we are, how firm and faithful we are. We don't do it. But we said it. Gideon said it. He just didn't live it. Be careful about saying the right thing and not living it, not doing it, not practicing it. And finally, it seems to me that Gideon became self-indulgent. He began to think about himself and his family and, and what he wanted for himself. Self-indulgence, when we're thinking about ourselves, when we're thinking about our own desires, our own image, our own status, our own honor, when, we, when we're focused on ourselves, it'll always hurt us, it'll always bring us down. There is nothing more fundamental in being a disciple of Christ than denying ourselves, forgetting about ourselves, quitting thinking about what we want for us. Focusing on the Lord and his will. Gideon's such a tragedy because he started out really well. And he ended up really bad. Because success went to his head. Because he began to see the issues as personal. Because he listened to the people's flattery. Because he just didn't live up to what he said. And because he became self-indulgent and self-focused. Those are dangers for us as well. And I'd encourage you to, to consider those things. It's easy for us to become a Gideon. And the more the Lord blesses us with success, the more victories we have, the better things go for us. The easier it is for us to mutate also from Gideon, the rather insecure, humble man, to Gideon, the egotistical tyrant. That's an easy thing for us. It's a dangerous thing for us. I can reread and think about these chapters in Judges. Some of these things need a lot of personal reflection and application, but I believe character studies so often are so helpful because we can see ourselves in them. If you need to obey the gospel tonight, we encourage you to come and we stand and sing.